0: thank you Mark it's a wonderful privilege for me to be here and uh, we built in some margin and tried to get here early enough and we were happy to be able to be in the uh, adult Sunday school class and to already hear Mark's teaching and to be uh, aware of what a well-taught church this is I uh, did confer quite a bit with Pastor Chris and I'm very thankful for his approach to the Word of God and consecutive exposition of Scripture. And I said to him, uh, he said, you know, you can just preach whatever's on your heart. I said, well, I really prefer to fit in with your series so I don't come in with either as a hired gun, just doing something you told me to do to lay this group low, or worse, just pulling something out of the barrel. So it's been good for me to have a fresh look at... This text in Ephesians, and I have been blessed uh, by doing that. We've already prayed for illumination, but I would like to pray not just for myself, but also for you as listeners. So, Father, as you shine the light of your Spirit's work on the text which he himself inspired, we pray that all of us would not just see what's there in the text, but would see ourselves as you see us so that we can counter the lies of the enemy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Listen then, please, to Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, as it is translated by the folks who put together the ESV. Uh, I was so grateful that the Sunday School class is working through knowing God. And as many of you will know, J.I. Packer was really at the heart of the group of people who translated the ESV. And until a few months ago, I was privileged to say that J.I. Packer was my favorite living theologian. And, of course, he's in glory now and uh, well, well well-deserved. Listen then to Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand That we should walk in them. I did indeed listen to a couple of uh, Pastor Chris's messages and did so with great appreciation. I told him that Chris is one of these guys who's like someone who mows the lawn in his preaching and then turns right around immediately and mows it in the other direction to pick up a few more blades of grass. And uh, Chris, if you listen to this uh, online later, I know you will feel the freedom, and we'll probably take that freedom to look at this passage again, maybe multiple times, because it's that rich. But one thing I've learned uh, as I've served as a pastor and then tried to equip pastors is that we get different things from a text of Scripture depending upon how much of it we take. The basic rule is we need to take a unit of thought, and that's could be a sentence, usually a paragraph, sometimes several paragraphs. And in this case, verses 1 to 10 are a real unit of thought. And I've also learned that the context will tell us how this unit wants to be interpreted. And Mark's already helped us by, in his prayer, revisiting the preceding verses, which I was going to quote later, but I don't need to now, that part at the end of chapter 1. So with this in mind... What I want you to notice here is that this text is addressed to us, and it's about us. Did you see that in chapter 2, verse 1? And you were dead in trespasses and sins. So he's talking about the you, and the you in the context historically, of course, are the Gentile Christians who lived in Ephesus, but very likely, as I'm sure Pastor Chris has already told you, this is a circular letter. So it was already addressed to several yous, and we are perfectly justified in including ourselves in the you. So he is addressing us, you, and I'm addressing you, but he's also talking about us. He is going on to say things about the you he is uh, addressing. And I'm looking at the text this way, Because the living God wants us to see ourselves accurately. If we mess that up, if we don't see ourselves accurately, we're sitting ducks for the devil who will feed us all kinds of lies. You know that sometimes a passage of scripture is like a painting. It sort of gives us the big picture. Sometimes it's like a window into which we can look at specific situations in the world around us, but often it is like a mirror so that when we look into the, the words of scripture we see the words but we're meant to see ourselves that's what this text is doing it's a mirror and i want to let it function that way um, the secret of preaching is to let the text have its say in its way and that's what i want to do this morning is every time i preach so this passage reminds us of three key truths about ourselves and you see them on the outline there or at least the titles of each of the three key truths and I I say it reminds us of these three key truths because of something in the following context. Take a look at 2.11 therefore remember and at the beginning of verse 12 remember so what the apostle paul by the inspiration of the holy spirit is pointing out the three truths i want to underscore are going to be reminders to most of us here i'm i'm very encouraged that this is such a well-taught church i've experienced it in the last hour i've experienced it by going to the website so this may be reminders only for some but it may be new for some so all of you turn in eve Don't turn in. I don't want anybody going to sleep. If if you're going to go to sleep, I always appreciate you do that before I get up to speak. That's probably happened to. Reminders are important because you remember what James says in chapter 1 about the person who looks into the perfect law and he's like someone who looks in a mirror and then goes away and forgets what kind of person he is. If I am doing my personal grooming and uh, see a massive piece of spinach hanging from between my teeth and do not attend to that, it's a pretty sure bet that if I smile, somebody else is going to notice that. And that doesn't matter too much, but the truths in this text do matter. So I'm going to ask you to look at this text, discover with me these three key truths, and then act on them don't go away from here forgetting what God wants you to know about yourself. Let this text show you yourself. So here's truth one. What we were like when God found us. What were we like when God found us? Look at the text. Chapter one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 and through verse 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, prominent part of the truth about what we were like when God found us is this word, dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The enemy would like to say, your sins are not that serious. It's not going to cause that big a problem. The truth of God is sin always leads to death. The wages of sin is death, and there's uh, no change in that due to inflation or deflation. Wages are the same. The wages of sin is death, But then there's this striking qualifier in the next phrase in verse 2, which we need to understand. In which, this is death, in which you once walked. Now, of course, that could be just referring to the trespasses and sins because that was our way of life. But I think we were really the walking dead. We were zombies. And I say that because you remember what happened to our very first parents. When they were in the garden, God had provided in Eden a lush bunch of trees and he said, you can eat as much as you want from any of these trees. Can you imagine the wonder of that? You know, no calories, no problems, just eat as much as you want. All of these trees. There is, however, one tree in the midst of the garden from which you must not eat and there was a warning attached with that. For in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. But now... Adam and Eve were not stricken dead the minute they partook of the forbidden fruit. They continued to walk around, and we do too. That's because the death that's referred to here is a spiritual death. So death separates the the soul and the body, or the spirit and the body, the inanimate and the animate parts of us. It's a separation. This death was then and is now a separation of us from God. We were not able to relate to God. We were dead to God, unable to really hear Him in the sense of hear and heed, unable to respond to Him, unable to obey Him. That's serious. Dead people are lifeless. Body, bodies that are dead are corpses. They cannot respond, and we could not then, when God found us, respond to God. But let's expand a little bit on this word walked in verse 2 and as the ESV has it following which is twice used there but it more literally could be translated if some of you have a more literal translated translation according to so let me read the ESV following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind so we were walking and where were we walking we couldn't respond to god so who were we following well the three listed here are the classic enemies of humanity We were following the spirit according to this world. We were following this prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. And we were following the lusts of our flesh and of our minds. So we were dead, but we were walking. And the way we were walking is to follow the world, everybody around us, Satan from below us, if you like, and the flesh and the mind from within It's appropriate that he is described here as the prince of the power of the air. And it's the usual word in scripture for authority. But Satan's a usurper. He didn't really have the authority. He usurped the authority. He claimed that authority, and we bought into it when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So we followed him, his influence from below. We followed those who followed him, the world, and the influence from around. And we followed the lusts of our own flesh, our old unregenerate nature. And the problem was, because our minds were also captivated, we didn't even know we had a problem. So what's the consequence of this in this Understanding of this first truth, we need to grasp. Well, it's there in verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath. Now, we as evangelicals love to talk about having a personal relationship with God. Anybody ever use that expression? It's a good expression. We do have a personal relationship with God. But when you think about it, we already had a personal relationship with God. He is personal, we are personal. But the nature of that relationship was not of a submissive child to a loving father, but someone who is God's creature under the wrath of God. And we were that way by nature. We inherited that from Adam and Eve, and then we acted on what we inherited. So we don't just blame them, but we got it from them. Now we are responsible, we're responsible uh, before we came to faith, because We became children of wrath. Now, some people don't like this concept. They believe that God is all-loving. Just, by the way, had a good lesson on this, why it's appropriate not to get that wrong idea. But people who don't like the wrath of God need to think a little more deeply about this. See, God is not neutral toward sinners. The devil would like to have us believe God doesn't need to come into this. You can kind of control the consequences of your sin. It's not that bad and a whole string of lies. It is that bad. It leads to death. And it breaks our relationship with the living God. We had this personal relationship with God, but it was not one of neutrality. We were under his anger, his righteous anger, what the Bible calls his wrath. His wrath. If you have a trouble with this, see if you can let this example help you picture how you would feel if you put yourself in God's shoes. Suppose you're a a painter, a really good painter, an expert painter, and you paint an oil, an oil painting, a big one, a beautiful one. You craft it magnificently, it's expensive to do an oil painting, painters know that, you have it beautifully framed, and you give it to someone as a gift of love. And they promptly uh, use it for one of two uh, undertakings. They either put it under the oil pan of the car for when they're changing the oil to catch the drips, or use it for the cat litter. And you hear about this. Now, how are you going to feel? You're going to be angry if you are a normal person. Here is something you have given at great cost to yourself, And it is despised, it is treated badly. So here we were, the walking dead, in lockstep with Satan, following the world under God's wrath, and this little phrase at the end of verse 3, like the rest of mankind. See, we are tempted, and the devil loves to lie to us, say, you're, you're special, you're in a category by yourself, you're unique, uh, you are, you're better, you became a Christian because you're better than everybody else. No, the truth of God is we were just like everyone else. There's only one category of people, sinners, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. See, Satan loves to lie and say sin doesn't do that much damage. You can minimize the damage of sin. Or this is a little sin. It won't cause much of a problem. Or you're not as bad as others. Or you can fix your troubles. Or, yeah, you've made some bad choices, but you've got this under control. You're special. You're unique. You're all lies. All lies. What Dallas Willard used to like to call sin management you know the devil's a big advocate of that you can you can control your sin that's a lie you no know, our situation as the following context is going to make clear is we were without god and without hope in the world hopeless every last one of us was hopeless now if we get this truth wrong i am a sinner Say by grace, but uh, that apparently wasn't the cause of this. You know, when the microphone goes bad as a preacher, I always have this question in my mind. Was that Satan cutting this out so you won't hear something really important? Or was that the Lord in his providence protecting you from something I was going to say? <laughs> Truth number two. Truth number one, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're hopeless, utterly hopeless. Truth number two, what God did for us that we could not do for ourselves, and I'm going to splice in a little bit there about how he did it because they're really inseparable. This is wonderful news. God made us alive, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He, God, made us alive together with Christ. So the remedy to us being dead, that we've just heard we were, is God making us alive. But then he raised us with Christ and seated us with him, verse six, and raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is God's alternative to his wrath and Satan's dominion over us. This is where I was going to reread chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, which Mark read to us a moment ago because Christ is exalted. He is seated at the right hand of God far above all principalities and powers and every name that is named, including Satan's. So where are we now? Above Satan because we're seated with Christ he's a usurper of authority Jesus has far more authority than Satan and we are seated in him and with him but it gets better if possible God remade us at least provisionally it's got to be qualified in his image in Christ verse 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. This is God's remedy to that last part of our problem, the indwelling flesh, the old nature. He recreated that old nature in Christ, including giving us the mind of Christ. We have a new nature that includes the mind of Christ. Now, what I want you to see that I hope is not new to you, but it just might be, and we need this for sure as a reminder, all of these remedies to our condition, enlivening us, raising us, seating us, recreating us, are in Christ. So back in verses 5 and 6, we had that dual phrase with Christ, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6a, raised us up with Christ. But then in the last part of verse 6, we have this phrase, in Christ Jesus. And it's again in verse 7. Notice it there. His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And again in verse 10, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, this is what the theologians call union with Christ. And I am the first to confess I don't understand how he did this. I don't totally get it. I've read wonderful books on this. One of my former colleagues, Con Campbell, wrote a massive award-winning book on union with Christ, and I recommend it highly to anybody. It's a great book. But it's a deep, deep subject. But notice every time you read in the New Testament, especially the writings, the inspired writings of the Apostle Paul, you'll see, like you already have in Ephesians 1, in him, in Christ. We are united with Christ right now. This means that whatever is Jesus's, whatever is his, by his obedience is ours. In some sense, it goes way beyond my ability to grasp. Whatever belongs to Jesus is already ours because of what he has done. Enlivening us, raising us, seating us, recreating us. So Jesus was obedient. His obedience has been imputed to us. That's justification. Jesus is righteous. Righteous. We have his righteousness imputed, but also gradually worked in us by sanctification. We have his status as children. We're his children now. What we will be, we haven't seen yet, but we know now we're his children, 1 John 3. We also, amazingly, have his future. Indeed, I think we can say his glory. So when in the Old Testament, as we read earlier in the Sunday School Hour, he doesn't share his his uh, glory with anyone else well the context there is idolatry God does not share his glory with any idol but his glory is shared with all three persons of the Trinity and now that we are in Christ we share at least provisionally his glory and one day we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is as I said I can't really explain this but maybe an analogy will help think of a little child I've met some beautiful little kids here this morning. Think of a little child who's too young to have really done anything, deserved anything. Well, just by virtue of being a child in that family, this child has a name, has a home, perhaps an inheritance, and much else, just by virtue of who they are in. They're in a family. Well, if it's true of a human family, think what it's like to be not just in the family of God, which we are, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, far above all principalities and powers and above every name. This is what God did for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. And as I'm sure you know, the summary word for all of this is he saved us twice. Verse five, end of the verse and verse eight. He saved us. Who needs saving? Drowning swimmer for one. By definition, a drowning swimmer cannot save herself or himself. As far as they're concerned, it's game over. They're going down. They need saving, and that's what God did for us, what we couldn't do for ourselves. How did he do this? Well, as we've seen, he did it by bringing about union with Christ. But he also did it by grace. Again, that's twice here in verse 5 by grace you have been saved. Uh, Even when he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And again in verse 8, by grace you have been saved. Through faith it is not your own doing. That phrase, through faith, is very important, but it needs some further explanation. It's key to understand that faith is in contrast to works. We weren't saved by our works. We were saved through faith. So brothers and sisters in Jesus, fellow free church people, one thing we have to guard against particularly is making faith into a work. It's really, it's possible and I've seen it happen where we take our own faith as an achievement we speak of, I came to faith, I believed, as if that was something we did on our own that bought us salvation. It really isn't. No, when the text here says uh, it is not your own doing, it means even the faith was not your own doing. That too was a gift of God. The only thing I bring to my salvation is the sin from which i need saving don't bring i don't bring anything else yes it's faith through christ it's also faith in christ but two times in the new testament and i'm so grateful that one of the songs we already sang reinforces this two times in the new testament the expression is not faith in christ but the faith of Christ. Now, this may seem odd to you and I know this idea has been misused for the theologians in the group. And frankly, our translations don't help us here because they expect the phrase to be faith in Christ, so they translate faith in Christ when it's actually faith of Christ. Both of these I'm referring to Galatians 2:16 if you're taking notes. And Philippians 3.9, Galatians 2.16 and Philippians 3.9, both speak of the faith of Christ. Now, why am I laboring this? Why is this such good news in understanding how God saved us? It's this. There are going to be those days when I don't feel very good about the quantity or quality of my faith. My faith is going to feel weak. My faith is going to feel imperfect. My faith is going to wane because the circumstances loom large. And in addition to that, the accuser of the brethren and sistren, the devil, is going to nail me on this. He's going to say, Your faith's so pitiful, that, that could never save you. To which I can say, I am not trusting in the quality or the quantity of my faith. I'm trusting Jesus. And the quality and the quantity of his faith, his faith led to obedience. And the obedience was, of, was the, the obedience of the cross. He died for me, gave me his righteousness, his obedience, his faith, all of it. He gave me everything I need. As Peter says in, first, and in Second Peter, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And it's all a gift. There is nothing, that we cannot imagine a salvation greater than our salvation. And that's the kind of salvation we need because there is no plight as bad as ours. There's no problem that was uh, as severe as ours because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it was a walking death because we were following the world, the flesh, and the devil. So God did what we couldn't do saved us through faith and placed us in Christ so that his faith, his obedience are what counts perfectly for us. The writer of the Hebrews dealing with some Christians whose faith was really flagging. They had a challenge with, with, with their faith. They were under persecution they were having trouble persevering, and maybe there's somebody like that here today, and you say, I don't know if I can press on. He says to them in chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We cannot neglect the greatness of our salvation, even if the devil would convince us that it's not that great because our need wasn't that great. you see how these two go together? When we understand the greatness of our need, we will understand the greatness of our salvation. But let me... Whip past this to the third of these truths because it brings it right back down to earth. The third truth is why God did what he did in the way he did it. Why did he do it as he did it? And there are some internal reasons here, completely independent of us. So chapter 2, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. The internal reasons are rooted in the character of God. He's rich in mercy. His great love for us moved him to express that in grace, which we've already seen in verses 5 and 7 and 8. Mercy plus love yield grace. God did not see something in us he thought he could work with or something that made us promising candidates. If you've ever said to yourself, I'm not really good enough to become a Christian, then you don't yet really understand the gospel. The truth is, none of us are good enough to become Christians. We could not become good enough to become Christians. And it's that kind of people and only that kind of people whom God saves, because that's the only kind there is. And until we see that, we won't value the gospel as we should. But there's another reason here, and it's to exclude boasting. Did you see that in verses 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, the devil's stock in trade is pride and boasting. That's what he does. That is his, that's the essence of his rebellion. And he loves to export that to us. And if there's any way we can take credit for our salvation, we will. By the way, this is free. The doctrine of election that you studied in some depth from chapter 1, one of the major reasons I think that the doctrine of election is so precious is because if there's any way I can take credit for my salvation, I'll figure out a way to do it. But if my salvation was determined in eternity past, before I was even a gleam in my father's eye, I can't take credit for it. I wasn't around. The only place I existed was in the mind of God who chose me and all of his children to demonstrate his matchless grace. There's another facet to this truth God, and this is the permanent one and unbelievably powerful, God wants the whole universe to see living, breathing, walking examples of his grace, to marvel at them and to give him the glory. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How's he going to do that? By looking at a people like us. And the whole world in 310 will say this when you get there. The whole world will look at us and say, wow, any God who can save a ragtag bunch of dead people like that and turn them into people who are growing to be like Jesus, his grace, his kindness is immeasurable, that's what the text says. Permanent reason, it's a cosmic reason. He wants everyone, and you even Satan himself, to marvel at his kindness. Now, when we say that God is doing all this to get glory for himself, some people stumble at that, and I understand why. Because if I want to get credit, and this came up in the Sunday school class too, if I want to get credit for myself, that's wrong, that's bad, that's pride. But God deserves it. Because he planned all of this from eternity past. He executed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He applied it by the work of the Holy Spirit. He deserves all the credit and all the praise. But it's not just because he deserves it. It's because it is the very best for us. The very best thing that can happen to you or me, young or old, male or female, is to worship That's the best thing. That's what you were created for. And so God has arranged things so that all of these events move us to and enable us to worship God. But there's another facet to this reason with which I draw to a close. It's in verse 10. Brings us right back down to earth. We spent most of our time this morning talking about things in the heavenlies. Here we come back down to earth. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the good news of this passage? What you were utterly unable to do before, you can now do. Do you remember back in verse 2 in which you walked? Now same word, verse 10, he created all these good works so that we can walk in them. He grants us Repentance. We who were following the way of death, he turned around so we can follow the way of life. We weren't saved by good works, but we were saved, somebody, for good works. And now we can do them. God's work is for his glory alone. And he enables us to do it. So I want you to embrace these truths. As you meditate on this passage in the weeks ahead and days ahead, embrace the truth when when Satan lies to you about your previous condition. Or when your flesh wields its ugly head or your mind sets something distorted for you. This is the way we all were. And that's why our salvation is so, so great. And he did it to get glory for himself. So what does that look like this afternoon and tomorrow? Well, what's the good work that God has created ahead of time for you to walk in? Uh, I know that in this church's history, there was a Wesleyan tradition way back. I don't know if anybody was here during that time, but Pastor Chris told me about it and John Wesley is one of my heroes the last letter he wrote he wrote to William Wilberforce Wesley himself was a a great proponent of heart religion he said I want to help people become true Christians and so this is the kind of passage he lived in but he wrote to William Wilberforce and said dear sir his last letter unless the divine power has raised you up to be and Athanasius Contramundum. I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise of ending slavery in opposition to that that execrable villainy which is the scandal of religion, of England, of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, Who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? No. No. God raised up Wilberforce to deal with the wickedness of slavery. Your calling may not be that lofty, but he's raised you up for something. He created good works for you to walk in them. Today. This week. Let's pray that he would indeed show us those works and free us to walk in them.